sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. If you have more than $50 million in assets, this is the ultra-rich, you're going to have to pay 2% a year of that amount over $50 million. I know my motivation is to tell the truth, and I will affirm that what is in the indictment about me is uh, accurate, and I will affirm that if asked to in court. How late in the third trimester would you be able to do, to do that? The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. And now, Stacy Washington. Yeah. Oh, my. Wow. Uh, such an amazingly, dastardly slate of news that we have for today on the program. And I just thank you for being here. Thank you for making your home at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's fantastic to be with you. Uh, so who do we have on the show today? Well, we're going to be speaking with author Jerome Corsi. You may have heard of him uh, with the, the Mueller probe, and he's written a new book called Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. And it's kind of fascinating to hear from him directly about what's what's happened to his life since he was embroiled in this and in, in this investigation. He's going to come on. We're going to hear from him in his own words about what's been going on, how it's impacted him and what we can expect. Uh, we also are going to talk about uh, we have a little bit of audio of uh, Roger Stone on Fox News talking about what he's going through right now. And so the point of these interviews is not that I have any knowledge or for, you know, anything that I could predict about anyone being guilty or innocent. But it is a matter of fact that in our country, in the United States, you are innocent until proven guilty uh, in front of a jury of your peers. And so these investigations have not yet concluded and they're not the, the entire report has not been issued for us to then go through as American citizens and weigh what we feel are the facts, what, what, what they feel are the facts or what they have presented a, a, as the facts and for us to go through and ascertain who's right, who's wrong, what, what the truth of the matter is. I'm excited to get to speak to Jerome today. And, and, you know, the main thing I'm concerned with is that we continue to see only prosecutions of people who are associated with Donald Trump and anyone who is associated with Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, they have remained uninvestigated. That is not the blind lady of justice that we have come to really tout as our Anglo-Saxon judicial system. And so we, we've got to get we've got to get back to it. Um, so I'm excited to speak to him today. We're also going to talk about this big, huge subject. Um, obviously, the Mueller investigation is wrapping up. Uh, we, we heard a little bit of that from um, Matthew Whitaker. He's announced that the Mueller investigation is nearly over. Uh, it has upset a great number of people, including Bill Kristol and some others who are often on television, because the wrapping up of the investigation without finding any of the Trump world associates guilty of collusion and, uh, you know, interacting with the Russians as agents means they probably don't have that kind of evidence on the president either. I think a lot of people are going to be embarrassed and humiliated and the Democrats are going to provide cover. The Democrat owned media, CNN, MSNBC, they're going to provide cover. And they're going to try to lessen the impact of the humiliation. They're going to frame it as some kind of botched investigation. They're going to say that Donald Trump has intimidated people. And all kinds of really crazy things are going to be alleged about the president and the entire DOJ and their pet rock, the FBI. So they're going to turn on him. 
I, mark my words, they will turn on those agencies and those people that they have up to this point been holding up as paragons of virtue. And Mueller himself will probably come under attack. And I, all I can say is um, the only thing we have to really concern ourselves with is that one particular concept, innocent until proven guilty, and if you do not have a preponderance of the evidence with which to present a case and a jury of your peers is not finding you guilty of anything, then a person is innocent. So let's, let's just, let's, let's calmly go into this next topic. And it dovetails in with my, uh, my daily confession today, uh, before I formed you, I knew you, um, because this topic is really, it's, it's everywhere. Well, it's everywhere except on your local television news. You would think that something as abominable as saying a human baby that is moments before birth, that you could still kill that baby and call it abortion, um, something that's supposed to be safe, legal, and rare, and only in instances of uh, incest or rape or health of the mother, or you know, you have six kids already and you just can't have any more, and so you're going to have to make this terrible sacrifice by you know, killing another person. That is supposed to be what abortion, it was, that's what it was billed to us as. That's what they've been selling for the past you know, umpteen years since the passage of Roe v. Wade in 1973. The, we've been told this is to prevent back alley abortions. This is to prevent coat hangers. This is to prevent unsanitary conditions. And this is to prevent people from being forced into having abortions in back alleys instead of being able to walk into a nice clinic and make a choice for themselves. And we've gotten so far away from that that we now see in New York, we've already discussed the abomination that went on there. But now we have Democrats in Virginia who have proposed this before. So Virginians don't even see this as new news. They're now saying and have proposed that they want to pass a bill allowing abortions up to 40 weeks. Now, if you're just tuning into the show, you might want to buckle in because as a permanent I'm permanently tanned, permanently tanned individual made by God in his image, just as you are. I am pro-life, regardless of the feelings of anyone who might have just tuned in. Welcome home. You're on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thank you for being here. This subject should transcend right and left politics. This subject is about something that I, I, I how did you exist up until this moment if you haven't interacted with a human baby before. You were a baby at one point, but you're not going to remember that. So somewhere in your life, you have interacted with a human baby up to this point. Now, we're not talking about what we used to be told over and over again. It's just a clump of cells. It's not really human. It doesn't look human. It doesn't have hands and feet and it can't feel anything. That's what we've been told is the legitimization of abortion up to 24 weeks. And after 24 weeks, they say, well, it's still just a lump and it's still not really human and it can't breathe on its own. It can't live outside the mother. So we got we, we, we to have a choice to kill that too. Late-term abortion is only in the health of the mother. So doctors are now coming out and saying, look, you know, there's no reason to abort a baby in the third trimester because the third trimester means the baby is formed and able to live on its own outside of the mother's womb. Early inducement of the mother can happen so that the mom can have chemotherapy or radiation if the mom is diagnosed with cancer during the pregnancy. If the mom becomes sick to the point where she can no longer carry the baby, they don't kill the baby. 
they induce early labor or have a C-section and take the baby out and take it to the, the NICU, the, the neonatal intensive care unit. So the advances in medicine, and especially here in America, where we're on the cutting edge of medical technology and advancement, we are the innovators in medicine. There is no legitimate reason, according to doctors who are now publicly, they're, they're not even concerned about how political this looks. They're basically coming out and saying, I've taken the Hippocratic Oath and there's no way I would engage in this because it is medically unnecessary. Any baby in the third trimester can be removed from the mother and kept alive. There's no reason to kill the baby. And when we talk about, like, we, we have to be real here about what we're discussing. We're talking about a baby that any, uh, at any other point, if it wasn't for this issue of abortion, if any friend of yours, if any relative of yours, if you're a grandparent and your children are of childbearing years and, and, and they were expecting a baby and they were told in the seventh month, we have to take the baby now because your baby needs surgery or, your, you know, whatever. You wouldn't say, no, no, don't take the baby, kill it. No, because you and I know that premature born babies that are cared for properly grow into fully functioning, healthy adults. So do babies who are born a week or too early. Just like babies who are born a week or too late. I happen to have started my, my entry into this world late. I was late. I was born late. And so I ended up being born on my mom's birthday. And my mom's a twin. So all three of us have the same birthday. And for my kids, I thought, oh, no, they'll probably be late, too, because whatever kind of labor and delivery your mom has, it's kind of like, you know, you could possibly you, you have a high chance of having that same thing. And my oldest child was she was a little late, but I didn't wait two weeks. She was like a day or two late. And I went and had some jalapeno chili and walked them all until I was exhausted and went home and I went to labor about four hours after that. But for you to say that a baby that is 38 weeks, 39 weeks, 40 weeks, and so full term, that baby is six and a half, seven pounds. That is a, it's a doll. It's the size of the dolls that you see little girls dragging around in the mall with them or pushing in their tiny little, you know, baby doll strollers. It's a baby a crying, breathing human child, and it is alive and able to go to another family. There are literally hundreds of thousands of families out there, couples who have infertility issues, but there aren't enough newborn babies or even babies under the age of one, under the age of 12 months to adopt. And so often they do the, you know, they'll, they'll do the in vitro fertilization. They'll go through a whole bunch of different things for years and years and years because they really want an infant. They want the experience of having a baby. So the idea that this is necessary is ludicrous. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks it's ludicrous. The woman who's describing this, Tran, she's a delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates. She's being questioned by one of her colleagues about this bill. And she doesn't like the tone of the questioning. You have to hear this for yourself. And while you're hearing it, I need you to think about the last time a friend of yours, a child of yours, a sister, a brother, an uncle, anyone you know had a baby, what it would be like if someone said, ah, I, I don't want this baby. And the only option is to kill it. 40 weeks. What would you think of that? What would you do if you were in New York? You would do nothing because it's now lawful there 
to kill a baby of that age. And one more thing for those who think that we're over dramatizing this or that, that conservatives are all, we're triggered, we're snowflakes, we don't know how to handle people dissenting with us or different ideas. This means that because you must remember the case. And if you didn't hear about it, just Google it. High school boy tried to kill his girlfriend because she was pregnant. And, you know, read the story for yourself. Imagine what happens if a sexual predator gets a underage girl pregnant or a grown woman pregnant. They don't have to kill the woman anymore. They can just beat her to within an inch of her life and cause her to lose the baby. And they won't be prosecuted if they're in the state of New York because they didn't kill anything because in New York City, a baby up until 40 weeks is not something that is protected by law. The life of that baby is no longer protected. Let's listen to this, this heinous debauchery here. It's, it's really we're coming full bore into the sin that has to happen before God passes judgment on us as a country. It's number one. How late in the third trimester would you be able to, to do that? You know, it's very unfortunate that our physicians, uh, witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, no I'm talking that. about your bill. How, yeah, how, late, I mean, how late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay. But to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman. I understand that. that. I'm asking if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that, yes. So you might be horrified by that. I certainly am. We're going to hear from, as we're going out here, it's Ainsley Earhart. She's talking about how this uh, impacted her learning of this. Oh, I hear the music. Okay. We will hear that audio from Ainsley Earhart. And I have a bit more for you. We actually have... Uh, Virginia governor just endorsed killing a baby once it's fully delivered. The governor of Virginia, uh, we have that and so much more for you. Stay right there. Stacy on the right. everyone, I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You can't squeeze more into three days than we will in Washington, D.C. on our spiritual heritage tour. In June and in September, we're going to the Capitol, Library of Congress, the Supreme Court, Lincoln Memorial, the Korean and Vietnam Memorials, the Iwo Jima Memorial, the Arlington National Cemetery, the White House, that's outside, Jefferson Memorial, and the National Archives, and... We're going to Mount Vernon on that Saturday of our tour. So, so much to see, so much to do, and it includes lectures and talks from Stephen McDowell, who will be our historian along the way. For more information on these June or September spiritual heritage tours, 
and the separate tour to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. For all the information on this, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritualheritagetours.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. In 1978, Karen and our children and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia and began praying for a house. We tried to save every dime we could for a down payment on a home. With what we were making and the cost of houses, it just wasn't working, but we kept praying. I wish I had time for all the details, but one day I received a phone call from a man who told me he had made a lot of money in a business transaction and he wanted to help us to get a house. I hung up that telephone, and the tears started flowing down my cheeks. I kept saying to myself, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. But at the same time, something said to me, what did you expect? You asked, and God answered. Remember the story of Peter in Acts chapter 12? This was Peter's second stint in prison. Verse 5 of Acts chapter 12 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. While they're in prison, God answers, and Peter's standing there, knocking on the door of the very house in which they're having the prayer meeting. But they keep praying. This girl named Rhoda comes and tells them Peter's outside. Verse 15 says, They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. What did they really expect? Well, what do you expect? Here's what I want you to remember today. When we pray, God wants us to expect an answer. And when he answers, he doesn't want us to be surprised, but he does want us to fall down and worship him in praise. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Join Crawford tomorrow for another Legacy Moment. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Ah, welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here today. I really, I'm so excited to speak to our next guest. I want to hear all that he has to say about his new book and everything that's been going on with him with the Mueller investigation. It's my pleasure to welcome Jerome Corsi to the program. And I want to point everyone over to, uh, you can obviously, as always, go to amazon.com and find the book. The book is called Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. Mr. Corsi, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Great to be with you, Stacey. Thank you very much. So talk to me. I know um, I've been following your case and the other cases that have whatever they've they've given to the public for us to consume news wise. Um, And I've just been surprised by how virulent the opposition has become in insisting that you and others affiliated with the president are some kind of agents of Russia. Meanwhile, none of the convictions or indictments have anything to do with collusion or anything that really is within the original scope of the investigation. Well, I, I mean, this is a good point, and I, I've been arguing, Stacey, repeatedly that this unequal justice, where, you know, Mueller's charge is apparently only to investigate Russian collusion as it affects Donald Trump, is unequal justice. It's not the way justice should work in America. I can tell you from my own experience firsthand that the Mueller team was not interested in any evidence that has to deal with um the obvious, I think, 
uh, corruption and collusion within the um, Department of Justice, where so many people like this Strzok and Page were exchanging emails that made it clear they hated Donald Trump and mm. were going to do everything they could to have this insurance policy to remove him from office should he get elected. Uh, this is what needs to be investigated, and I think the American people are um, clearly seeing through what is, and I allege in my book, Silent No More, is a political witch hunt. And uh, Mueller was going to make me a political prisoner to it uh, by charging that, you know, wanting me to accept a plea agreement, which I refused to do. So why? why? So why do they want you to take, is, is because accepting a plea agreement is the equivalent of a conviction and therefore they can say, look, we've, we've got another of the members of Trump world, you know, Trump organization, et cetera, and it kind of gives them credibility in continuing the, the witch hunt or what? I assume that that's part of the blinking, but I mean, look, the what the case was was that um, I did not lie uh, to to be at all. In fact, the the my in forty hours of interrogation blew up when um, I could not give Mueller. I had no link to Julian Assange. I've never met with Julian Assange. I've never spoken with Julian Assange. It's Julian Assange affirms and is. By mentioning me by name, that I've never had any contact with him or with WikiLeaks. Now, it, it was fraudulent what the special prosecutor did. I, the first day of my 40-hour testimony, went over two months, six sessions. I had not seen my 2016 emails, and uh, I was asked, "Well, did I want somebody to go to see Julian Assange?" I said, "No." Well, I'd forgotten this email, where in July 2016, Roger Stone had sent me an email said you know, get somebody to go see Assange. Mm -hmm. I forwarded that email to, uh, forwarded it to Ted Malik in London, and the special prosecutor said, you you did want somebody to go to see Assange, so we can prove what you just said was demonstrably false, and you lied to us. Well, they allowed me to go home and load my uh, 2016 emails. I found that one, and I came back and I amended my testimony. But yet when they... Special prosecutor blew this all up. They wanted me to plead guilty to the first day's memory mistake, not to the fact that it was amended. Well, I, I, you know, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I'm not going to go in front of a grand jury and put my hand in a Bible or, or judge and swear that I knowingly and willfully gave the special prosecutor information I knew to be false on a material issue. Uh, in order to deceive them. I didn't do that. I had, I forgot a couple of emails. But, you know, that's the crime, and I'm convinced I did not commit that crime, uh, even though my memory is bad. And uh, the special prosecutor, I think, finally has accepted that I don't have a connection to Bueller. They've examined every aspect of my life, uh, the, every aspect of everything I've done, sent people out, the FBI, to interview everybody I was talking to or really interacting with in 2016, their investigation is extensive, but yet they cannot find anything I've done wrong. So, and I've been likening this to, you know, someone basically saying, look, come in here, we're going, we're going to ask you some questions about your work from two years ago, you know, or a year and a half ago, or whenever they, they, they kind of brought you in. And then without you having any notes or access to a laptop or your calendar, they start to take you through a line of questioning where you're you're telling the truth to the best of your knowledge and you don't have anything to hide, 
but they're kind of making meticulous notes on everything that you're saying so that they can catch you up. And it's, it's not because they think you're guilty of anything. They want to get you on the crime of lying to them, which I have no problem with it being a crime to lie to federal prosecutors. I think that's, that's appropriate. But it's not okay for them to intentionally place you in a, a scenario where I don't remember all of my emails from 2016. I don't remember the ones from 2017 or 2018. I, I know people that I've communicated with. I can give you a general idea. But if you start talking about specific dates, I need to go back to my calendar and take a look. Not because I'm guilty, but because my memory just does not retain those kinds of details. I think that's pretty normal for Americans who have, you know, 40,000 unread emails in our boxes. If you work anywhere, you have tens of thousands of unread emails. So how, how is it that they can justify this with a straight face if Mueller is supposed to be this upstanding, amazing person, Jerome? I mean, we're talking about how he's just, it's like he set the stars and the moon on, you know, he's just the most outstanding individual ever. And we're all supposed to believe everything he says, even if our eyes tell us he's lying. How could he get this so wrong? Well, I think the key here is that uh, I've not done anything wrong. And Mueller has not charged me with anything. Uh, in fact, it looks to me now like in Roger Stone's indictment, they're planning to use me as a witness. And it looks like the testimony I did give to, to Mueller, including to the grand jury, um, they clearly want to use either me as a witness or my emails and my messages as a as uh, evidence. But I'm person number one in this indictment. I think that means I'm witness number one. And I can affirm what they have stated in the indictment is all consistent and true with everything I've said, testified to, and uh, with the 40 hours of voluntary interviews I did with them. And I testimony to the grand jury the one day I went to the grand jury. And uh, you can also see it reflected as accurate in what I reported as silent no more. I mean, how I reflect this interrogation is 40 hours. They pick you up at the hotel. The FBI does. They drive you to an unmarked FBI building in the southeast section of Washington. And you uh, are ushered up. In, you come in through the garage. You give up your cell phones and your laptops, any electronics. They usher you up to this conference room, which has no windows in it, internal conference room. Of course, it's got an observation dome in the center on the corner by the wall where you can obviously somebody in another room can watch everything that's going on. And then you're confronted by three prosecutors and up to six to nine uh, FBI on the other side of the table. Mm. And when you deal with this hour after hour after hour of investigation, questioning, I mean, it, you, your mind, my mind became mush. I mean, you, you can't, did I remember it? Did I, you said, well, Dr. Chris, we don't want you to invent it or reconstruct it. We really want you to remember it. Well, that, it becomes impossible after a while to distinguish whether you're reconstructing or remembering. And truthfully, I'm not a human tape recorder. I don't remember the exact words or the exact things in an email or what I said to someone on a telephone conversation precisely in the granular detail, they were demanding I remember it. So I guess one of the questions that I'm, I'm dying to ask is, so you would be, you know, in, against this indictment uh, to Roger Stone, you're going to be witness one as opposed to, you know, person of interest, number one. Is there any truth to the allegation that there's been some kind of, uh, interaction or connection or 
working with, working through any of that stuff in order to change the result of the American election in 2016 between the Trump campaign and Trump surrogates and the Russians? Well, you know, Roger's not being charged with collusion. There's nothing in this indictment. This indictment is all about lying to the House Intelligence Committee and witness tampering. But I thought there had to be some kind of crime associated with it in order for it to be witness tampering, in order for it to be, uh, Well, you know, the, the crime that they're alleging Roger did was lying to the House the Intelligence Committee. That's what they're accusing you of doing, just that. This is another process charge. It's Roger lying to a, um, a House committee. You know, they, many people in the, in the Obama administration lied, and it were proven to lie, including James Comey. The congressional committees. They're not indicted with anything. But this is Roger. No collusion is in here at all. Uh, I had no contact with Assange. That was the main falling apart with me and the special prosecutor is that I cannot connect Roger Stone to Julian Assange because I don't know Assange. I was going to go Roger Stone to me to Julian Assange and then communicating with Trump, and that was their collusion. But I can't prove that. My evidence is being cited in this indictment only in regard to the lying allegations against Roger, not Russian collusion at all. So in your opinion, from what you know, Roger Stone intentionally misled the Mueller team in his answers to them about this investigation? Well, Roger never spoke with the Mueller team, to the best of my knowledge. This is entirely testimony under oath that Roger gave the House Intelligence Committee. And in it, the, the basis of the um, indictments are that he misrepresented uh, facts intentionally to the House Intelligence Committee, and uh, that's what he's being charged with. Not collusion with Russia, not lying to Mueller, but lying to the Congress. Okay, so this thing's wrapping up. We just heard from Acting Attorney General General Whitaker that the Mueller investigation is in its final weeks. And, you know, thank God. It's been two years and multiple tens of millions of dollars of American taxpayer dollars. Uh, we need a resolution to this. So the humiliation that's inbound is going to be for people who have said openly on television repeatedly that the president is an agent of Russia, that they are his puppet masters, that he's done all of these things uh, because the Russians wanted him to. They're about to experience the full weight of the truth, which is that none of that has any, any weight or bearing. Am I right? I think so. I think those who are expecting the Mueller report or the Mueller indictments to uh, lead to Donald Trump and the idea that Donald Trump's an agent of Russia are going to be badly disappointed because there's nothing in Roger's indictment, and that's the highest indictment so far, nothing in any of the other indictments that implicate Donald Trump. And certainly I have no evidence that would implicate Donald Trump. I mean, I didn't communicate with Julian Assange at all. Julian Assange affirms that. I was not a member of Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, I didn't talk to Donald Trump. I saw him once in the uh, Trump Towers when he was going up into the elevators. He kind of pointed out at, at to me and made a little quip of a joke. We didn't talk. No conference, no discussion. I've not had any phone calls with Donald Trump at all. So there's no way, you know, you're going to use anything I have. Because I, I was a reporter. Uh, the special counsel was interested in me because they thought I could link 
Roger Stone to Hassan that in July and August when I was in uh, Italy on a uh, vacation trip with it was actually my 25th wedding anniversary. We were selling on my celebrating my wedding anniversary with my wife and family, and I had time. I figured out that Assange had Podesta's emails, but I figured that out. It was a deduction I made. It just happened to be remarkably right. But there was nothing in that that indicated at all uh, I had any contact with Assange, even though that's what the prosecutors assumed. Hmm. They wanted me to link Roger Stone to Assange. I, I can't do that. And that's where my testimony broke up, and they wanted to charge me with this crime I didn't commit. I refused to accept their plea deal, even though they were threatening to put me in prison for the rest of my life. I'm 72 years old. One year in prison could kill me. I mean, that's what they were. I, they wanted me to lie to this plea deal, which I did not do on testimony they had allowed me to amend. And that was their deal to stay out of prison. I wouldn't do it. I'm so glad you... Uh you're able to withstand the onslaught. When you were describing just then, and if you're welcome to the program, if you're just tuning in, I'm, I'm chatting with Jerome Corsi. He is uh, you know, a, a journalist and someone that we, we've previous to this point always heard of you connected with politics and, and your writing and all of that. And now you've written a new book, and I really encourage everyone to go over to Amazon and check it out. Um, I love Audibles, but you can also download the online copies. You can any any way you'd like to get it. The book is called Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. And Jerome has joined us today to talk about the book, why he wrote it, and how this investigation has really become what the literal epitome of what the president coined, witch hunt. And it's going so far as to, as you just described, this is the kind of stuff we see on uh, TV at night where someone's in an undisclosed, you know, black site for the FBI and they're getting questioned. But the person being questioned is always the bad guy. And we're always on the side of the good guys, which are the agents who are doing the interrogation. And they're always brought to justice at the end of 47 minutes or 43 minutes or whatever we've got on TV nowadays. And then we all go on about our business. But you've been living this. And for you to have to think that you might die in prison there's something wrong here. And I really appreciate you coming on the show today and writing the book. And um, I wish you the best. I, I hope everything gets really justice, that justice would be served. And um, All right. that you, you'd and be please able to take a look at my website, Corsi Nation, C-O-R-S-I Nation, .com. And that's where my legal defense fund is. This, uh, they, Mueller's now managed to cut off all my income. And... Um, you know, got mounting legal bills, and so this is a very, very. They try to bankrupt you as well. So this is uh, massive economic pressure. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Well, thank you, and I encourage people to share this uh, podcast and let everybody know what's going on here. Jerome, good good luck to you, and thank you for coming on. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, bye bye. Uh, we'll be back with more right after this. Stay there. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've seen God open up so many doors for us to help serve and love those who get affected by a natural disaster. As the trees and the wind started crashing down around us, my wife was, of course, very diligently praying, you know, Lord, please be with us. Very simply, we do it because God commands us to love others. I see these volunteers all as 
a gift from God. And I'm just grateful they're here, you know, helping out. It's a blessing. If you're interested in becoming a part of what God's doing through 8 Days of Hope, please go to 8daysofhope.com, click on Get Involved, submit your email address. I've noticed that whenever there's a time in my life when um, things might be a little gloomy, the number one thing that I can do is to go serve somebody. And uh, I would encourage anyone else to, uh, it's worth it. Come out and do it next time if you didn't make it to this one. And um, the Father will really bless you in it. Thank you so much for your prayers and volunteering with 8 Days of Hope. Pastor D. The Back to God movement always reminds people that we got to know who we are and whose we are. And we are children of the Most High God. Made in His image and likeness. That's what Genesis 1.26 says made in his image and likeness. So that means if Yeshua could walk on water, guess what? We can too. Each weekday at 4 o'clock Central on Urban Family Talk. And let's get back to God. Doc, I've been feeling a little out of sorts lately. Can you help? Well, let's try a few questions. What do you think of when I say the word Roku? Oh, my wife and I used to love that dance when we were younger. <laughs> yes, I'd say you're a little out of touch. What do you recommend? I recommend you listen to AFR, American Family Radio, available on Apple and Android products, Amazon Alexa, and now available on Roku. And then we'd whip, and then we'd nay nay. Oh, it was wonderful. From America's election headquarters, the current president rarely apologizes. But Democrats who may challenge him are kicking off campaign season by saying sorry. Contenders whose records clash with progressive priorities are signaling they've changed. Like Joe Biden, whose history includes support of the 1994 crime bill that progressives blame for the mass incarceration of minorities. I haven't always been right. Biden's long record also includes a stint as Senate Judiciary Committee chairman and now says he also regrets not objecting to the way colleagues strongly challenged Clarence Thomas accuser Anita Hill. I wish I could have done more to prevent those questions. Senator Bernie Sanders is also apologizing for not knowing some campaign staffers were accused of sexual misconduct. Absolutely unacceptable. Tulsi Gabbard says she's sorry too for previous condemnations of same-sex marriage. In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong. Peter Ducey, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. This is where she began her career as a prosecutor, where she first said the words, Kamala Harris for the people. It is now her campaign slogan. So what will she talk about in her campaign? It is going to be populist in nature, and it will be unapologetically populist. Here are the five points that the campaign says in excerpts that were obtained by CNN uh, prior to uh, this, her giving this speech. She'll be hitting on these five points, that she wants to seek Medicare for all, a middle-class tax cut, access to education, that includes universal pre preschool as well as debt-free college, criminal justice reform and fighting climate change. One of the words that she will be, uh, one of the phrases that she will be speaking is something that will carry forth in this campaign. She will be saying to this crowd, quote, I love our country and I feel a deep sense of responsibility to stand up and fight for the best of who we are and what our country can be. The people in power are no match for the power of the people. 
Oh, so that's uh, a reporter talking from the floor of the, the big 20,000 strong gathering that Kamala Harris had to an, on her official campaign launch kickoff kind of party she had. It was a rally, very well attended. It was actually a bigger campaign launch kickoff type deal than what President Obama had, which is a great indicator for her for her candidacy and how popular she is. The issue is she's not a populist. You know that and I know that. She's, she's nothing like President Trump. She doesn't believe that people who shop at Walmart like me and you have a, any ability to govern ourselves. If you're in the middle of the country, if you're in a country where most of the people around you have a southern accent, if you uh, are a regular church attendee, if you think Western civilization is killer and like is the best civilization ever, if you think that certain civilizations and societies are inherently better than others because of their rule of law and their constitution and their laws and the people themselves, if you think Americans are exceptional, if you have the American experience running through your veins and it's white hot like fire and you just know that it's the most awesome thing ever, if you actually pray to God and believe that he answers your prayers or that you can hear from heaven or that you can change the trajectory of history through your prayers, that if you get together with a bunch of people and you pray about something day after day, week after week, year after year, that God will move, then she's not talking about you. So she says, we, the people, you know, the people are going to be this, uh, this defining force. She's talking about leftists who know better than you, leftists who live on the coast, leftists whose parents may or may not have been, you know, natural born citizens, people who know better than you, who've been to the right colleges, who have the right letters behind their names, who don't own their own businesses because they work for Google or Facebook or Twitter or some derivative thereof. People who understand that it's way more important to make sure that everybody can afford to have a $900 payment on an Audi uh, Q5, that's way more important than you being able to live in a house that you can pay cash for and put your kids through some state school with them coming out with no student loans, but they also will come out not indoctrinated. You got it all wrong, and Kamala Harris is here to teach you what's right. And if you've ever been thinking to yourself, you know, I really got to get motivated. I got to get active. I, I got to start praying on a regular basis for my country. I got to start beseeching heaven. And, and really, I, I ask you, if you're in the listening audience, we have a lot of people who listen from across the world in England. And you'd be surprised the, the hits that I get on my blog from around the country where people, they send me direct emails and say, I listen to the show. Um, they're listening from around the world. If you're If you are a listener from another country, I ask you, Please pray for our country. Please, p- please pray for America. Um, the same way Americans pray for other countries and for Christians in other countries, w- we ask that you would pray for us because we are in a very dark time. It's a, it's a really dastardly situation that we see ourselves in where liberals are unleashing every bit of restraint that they've ever had on social issues. And I, th- I feel like a lot of Christians are bogged down by whatever, and are unable to really comprehend what's happening right now. It's as if we have so many of our own personal concerns or or things that, you know, are are just dominating our, our mental spaces that we can't really fathom what's happening. And I truly believe it's, it's not just Kamala Harris. It's this uh, issue that we were talking about with uh, the, the Virginia Democrats attempting to pass this bill, allowing abortions up to 40 weeks and the governor, Uh, saying the governor of Virginia saying, well, if a baby's born alive, they'll be made comfortable and then allowed to, you know, the doctors will decide the doctors and the parent will decide. What? 
So I promised you that we'd listen to this audio from Ainsley Earhart. And I want to give you the call lines because I want to take some calls and get some feedback here. I love hearing from you guys, when, especially when we have these really heavy news days. Sometimes it's hard because people don't want to call in because they want to get the information. But if you want to, it, the call lines are open, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Here's Ainsley Earhart of Fox & Friends, and this is this morning. And um, my producer actually sent this over to me because it's just so heart-wrenching to hear, but we need to hear it. Our hearts need to be wrenched. We need to hear Ainsley and everyone else, every woman should be crying out right now because if you're a mom already, you know what a six and a half pound baby is. It's not something to be disposed of. It is the game changer for you. The minute the baby comes out, your life is utterly changed and you become a totally different person. I know for me, it was just like, Something, something new happened. When I laid my eyes on her, I could not believe the feelings I had and, and how everything, my mind, everything about me just changed. And she's expressing that so beautifully here. It's Ainsley Earhart, number three. When I was reading articles about it this morning, they had pictures of babies just being born. And if you've ever had a baby, my gosh, it's the best experience of your life. And when they hand you that child, it changes your life in a major way. And, you know, this is beyond, this is so, it's so hard for me to wrap my head around. Listen, I know women have complications. I lost a friend. She was diagnosed with cancer and she got pregnant. She ended up losing the baby and then she ended up losing her life. I know that there are certain circumstances, but it's, it's the best day of your life when you hold that child. And there's so many women out there that want children. And, you know, I have so many people in my lives that weren't able to have kids. Girls in my Bible study, people down in South that I'm friends with who want babies so badly. And so there's so many women out there that would love to take these children. And so um, it's just a hard, it's a hard topic because the day they put Hayden in my arms, it was the best day other than my salvation. The day I got saved, it was the best day of my life. I'm with her. Uh, I, I count it as obviously the day of my salvation, baptism, because I, I, I thought being baptized was such a momentous thing. Um, and getting married the day I got married and each of the days that I gave birth to our kids. And I thought, you know, I knew it was going to be momentous. I knew it was going to be amazing, but it, it was just so much more than anything anyone could have described. And I've talked on the show about how when you're a new mom, that first 30 days or so, six weeks, you have this like superhuman strength where you feel like you could scale buildings, you can fly, you could do anything. It's an amazing energy that you get after you've delivered a baby. And there's also this, you, you've expanded. Your entire emotional ability has expanded because now you understand a different kind of love that is so, it's so radically, unbelievably all-encompassing and different from any other love that you felt before that. If you've had, you know, your sister has had a baby and you've loved that baby, it's amazing, but it's having your own baby is so different. And there's so many women out there who are just gutted. They've had miscarriages. They've just not been able to conceive. They've not been able to carry a baby to term and they've suffered so greatly. And to hear women who can give birth talk so cavalierly about destroying babies. They plan, they're, they're literally saying, 
anyone, anyone who says, you know what? I just changed my mind. I am eight months pregnant and I'm getting rid of this baby. And if you're in New York City, they're like, come on in. You don't even have to have a doctor. And so Kermit Gosnell said, he said that one day he'd be exonerated. He said, I will be exonerated for what I've done because what I'm doing, there's nothing wrong with it. And if that doesn't send a shudder through your, you, you, come on, are you alive? Are you with me? And I've seen the movie. I went to see it with a friend. And honestly, you know, I didn't want to go see it because I didn't want to face it. I didn't want to face the truth about what he'd done. I, I'd read all the news stories, but the movie, it's done like uh, CSI or, uh, uh, you know, uh, Law and Order. And I know some of the actors in it. Dean Kane, he's a friend. He's been on the show uh, like a, a bunch of times. Um, Alvonso Rochelle, he's a friend of mine too out of Hollywood. And he's, he's in the movie as well. And uh, even um, Scotty Nell Hughes has a cameo in the movie. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, aside from all of the being starstruck that friends I know have made a movie, it's, it's the movie is gruesome and it's grotesque and it's so utterly disgusting. Gosnell is an enlightening, tr- enlightening true story of a prolific abortion doctor who was successfully convicted of serial murder. And it's going to be available on video on demand and will be available Tuesday, February 4th on DVD. And my recommendation to you is if you care about this issue, if your heart is torn by what we're hearing out of Virginia, New York, get a copy of this movie on DVD and invite some friends over who it, you, you got to tell them beforehand it's not appropriate for children due to language content and mature, mature subject matter. Um, it is a devastatingly accurate picture of what happened in this, in this case. The images in the movie, some of the footage is real footage from his abortuary. But if you really want to make a difference, if you want to change the hearts and minds of people who may be on the fence about what abortion is and why it's needed and why it's still a choice, invite them over, serve them some lasagna or whatever, and let them watch the movie with you. Watch it with them. Let them see the movie and then don't preach to them afterwards. Just thank them for coming over and watching it and give them a little gift bag of hot cookies to take with them on the way out and tell them if they want to pray with you, if you, you know, if they want to pray together that you're available and that your friends, no matter what their decision is and start, let's start changing hearts and minds with the truth. That's my recommendation. I plan to buy a few copies of the DVD and I mean, I'm, I know people are pretty entrenched as far as I'm concerned because people that know me know what I do for a living and they know where I stand politically. And so if they don't agree with me, that, that it's not that they haven't heard what I've had to say, but I plan to do this as well. Uh, so you can go to, it's not going to be available at the afastore.net. So you won't be able to go there and get it, but what you will be able to go um, and get it soon on DVD and video on demand from Amazon, Best Buy, or Walmart. So, you know, if there's ever a time where I've asked you, hey, think about buying something, this is one of those ones where I would really, I stress to you, I think it's a good idea to get the DVD of this. So let's go to the phones. Um, Alex in Oklahoma, thank you for calling the show today. All right. Thank you for calling my call, uh, taking my call. Uh, you know, it's the box face from the from the tongue, you can hear what's in the heart, and it's been floating over the, you know, people have been hearing this up, but nobody has picked it up. It was a, a long time ago, people were saying, and I think Hillary might have said it, a baby isn't a baby until it's born. 
And so it's like this demonic catch-22 that they justify uh, boarding a baby in the last, very last minutes of trimesters because of this. And then you also recall that New York set a arch of Babel in New York. And also you have That's to right. listen to that. It's been talked that a two-year-old or toddler can be aborted because they're not aware of life and death, and they're not aware of what's going on. And that has been typed around, but nobody seemed to be typing on. But that's the next move. That, it is. It is, uh, Alex. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. So, so first of all, thank you for calling the show and reminding us of those incidences. I, I got I, I got a. So we talked about this and this was back when I had a weekly show and I was on locally here in St. Louis and I talked about this. Um, there was a person from Planned Parenthood and she was um, high up in Planned Parenthood and she was down in Florida and she was on a panel speaking to physicians and people about reproductive health type, uh, you know, people, people who are interested in reproductive health. And she said, and there's no reason why a mother can't change her mind when her child is 18 months old up to the age of two years old and decide that this baby isn't what I want and she should be able to dispose of it without having ramifications. So Alex is dead on here. And when he talks about the, uh, the, it's a arch to the temple of Baal. It's a 50 foot replica of the arch forming the entrance to the temple of Baal. And it was installed in New York earlier this month. And this was back in, uh, in 2015, honoring the symbol of a pagan deity that the Islamic state destroyed in 2015. And according to the New York Times, the 2,000-year-old Syrian town of Palmyra brought Muslims and Christians together for centuries. So if you're in the call queue, hang on. We'll get to you um, after our news and information from onenewsnow.com. And I, I, I want to hear from you. I, I Please hold on to the phone lines. If you're leaving us now, God bless you. I encourage you to hit the subscribe button at AFR.net, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, and StaceyOnTheRight.com. And to come back with us tomorrow, we'll be discussing this and more. Um, I actually want to make sure that I give you this information. Tomorrow, we're going to speak to Tommy Schultz, the National Communications Director for American Federation of Children. Um, we're going to be talking about school choice, which, is, which should be a choice. And we'll continue our discussion about this issue. There are things that we can do. God calls us to the house of prayer when our nation is in trouble. We're in trouble. The question is, will Christians respond? Please continue to pray for our country and to repent for where we are right now. God bless from the heartland. <laughs>